0: Author's Introduction We shall begin this book with a discussion of the basic principles of Judaism. Where possible, these will be illustrated by stories and anecdotes. First, we will present four ideas, which, if constantly kept in mind, will keep one from sinning. The first idea, one must first think about the wonders of God's creations. The entire universe and everything in it was created 5,490 years ago before this book was written. Absolutely nothing existed before God created the world. God is concerned with all the world, and He looks into each detail. Not only does He direct the universe as a whole, but He also examines each individual, rewarding or punishing Him for every deed. The second idea. One must also think about the Torah and its commandments. This obviously means the written Torah, but it also includes the oral Torah which consists of the laws, commandments, and rules which were given to Moses on Mount Sinai, but not actually written in the Torah. These must also be observed. It is also important to realize the difference between the earlier generations and those which came later. But first we will present a short history of the Torah and how it was revealed. Moshe received the Torah on Har Sinai in the year 2448, after creation. The Torah contains 613 commandments, each of which will be discussed in its proper place. The 613 consists of 248 positive commandments, paralleling the 248 limbs and organs in the human body, and 365 negative commandments, paralleling the 365 major blood vessels and sinews. All the people in the generation that received the Torah were clearly aware that God had taught Moses the explanation of each commandment. This explanation is called the Oral Torah. In order to publicize this fact, Moshe stayed on Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. As the Torah relates in detail, if he had gone only to receive the two tablets containing the Ten Commandments, it could have been accomplished in a single day. But during these 40 days, God taught Moses the explanation of the Torah. The Torah is written in an extremely concise manner, and much of it is difficult to comprehend, so one cannot understand the true meaning of the written text without resorting to the oral Torah. Thus, for example, the Torah states, They shall make for themselves tzitzis. But nowhere does the Torah describe the form of these tzitzis, how many strings and windings they must contain, or how they should be attached to the garment. Similarly, the Torah states, "You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and for a tefillin between your eyes, and you shall write on them." You shall write them on doorposts of your houses and gates. These two verses are recited twice daily in Shema, but still, no explanation is provided as to how the tefillin or mezuzahs must be made or where they should be placed. Without the Oral Torah, we would not even know whether to place them on the right or the left. The Torah states regarding Rosh Hashanah, "It shall be a day of sounding the horn." The text does not specify what kind of horn must be sounded, whether it should be a trumpet or the horn of an animal, nor is there any indication of how it should be sounded or how many times. All of this is found only in the oral Torah. Regarding the kosher slaughter of animals, the Torah states, thou shalt slaughter and eat flesh. The scripture, however, does not specify what kind of knife must be used, nor is there any mention of the many laws involving kosher slaughter and in the inspection of meat, again we must resort to the oral Torah. The Torah also says, "You shall dwell in sukkahs for seven days." For the scripture, from the scripture alone, we would not know how many walls a sukkah must have, nor with what it must be covered. Without the oral Torah, there would be no indication at all as to what constitutes a valid sukkah. All the commandments of the Torah are similarly presented in a highly abbreviated form, often with only the barest hint. God does not wish to write out all the details clearly for reasons known only to him. God commanded Moses that the written Torah should not be recited from memory and that the oral Torah should not be written down. The oral Torah was recited from memory and thus was given over from one person to another. It consists of the entire unwritten explanation of the written scripture. This is what is later codified as the Talmud. At the end of 40 years in the desert, on the first day of the Hebrew month of Shvat, Moshe gathered the entire nation of Israel and declared, The time has come for me to die. Some of you may have forgotten laws that I have taught you, or you may have questions regarding them. Now is the time to ask me and I'll explain everything. The people came and asked Moshe many questions. He taught them in this manner from the first of Shvat until the seventh of Adar when he died. During this period, he also wrote 13 complete Torah scrolls, Twelve of these were given to the twelve tribes, and the thirteenth was given to the Levim to place in the Holy Ark. Yehoshua, Moshe's chief disciple, learned the entire oral Torah from his master. Yeshua, in turn, taught it to the elders, who communicated it to the first prophets. The oral Torah was transmitted in this manner until the later prophets, who taught it to the members of the great assembly, this assembly consisted of such prophets as Haggai, Zachariah, Malachi, as well as Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah, Nehemiah, Mordechai, Zerubbabel ben Shaltiel, Ezra the scribe, and many other sages, for a total of 120 members. Simon the Just was the last surviving member of the great assembly, serving as high priest after Ezra. All of those individuals taught the Oral Torah in a similar way. They would read the written scripture from a Torah scroll, and then explain each detail in a precise manner in which they themselves had learned learned it. God had therefore commanded, according to the Torah which they shall teach, you shall do. You shall not turn turn aside from what they teach you, to the right or to the left. Since the written scripture is highly ambiguous and difficult to understand, we are commanded to act in accordance with the teaching of the sages, since it is they who preserve the interpretation of the commandments. For many years after the time of Moshe, no book containing the oral Torah was written. All of it was only taught orally. Similarly, there was no written record of the vowel points or the accents in the Torah. All that existed in written form was the Torah, precisely as as it is written today, with neither vowels nor accents. These were preserved by oral tradition, exactly as as they had been given to Moshe on Har Sinai. It was not until the time of the Great Assembly that permission was granted to put these vowel points and accents into writing, since these were details that could be easily forgotten. This the general state of affairs continued until Reb Yehuda the Prince, also known as our Holy Rabbi, who is a contemporary of the Roman Emperor Antoninus. Reb Yehuda was a great genius, perfect in piety and humility, who despite his great wealth avoided worldly pleasures. Not since the time of Moshe had there been such a combination of Torah knowledge and greatness. Extremely wealthy in his own right, Rabbi Yehuda was a leading sage, possessing great depth of understanding. He was an eminent stylist, knowing how to word a phrase so as to explain many things in a highly concise form. So greatly respected was his linguistic ability that other contemporary sages learned many details of the Hebrew and Aramaic languages merely by listening to a speech of his family. After he rose to position of leadership, Rabbi Yehuda ordered all the sages who had been scattered across the world to come together and form a great academy. From each of these sages, he learned the laws and rules which had, they had received in tradition from their teachers. It was Rabbi Yehuda who finally decided to put the Oral Torah into writing. This became the Mishnah, which he compiled and edited. From that time on, people began to write various portions of the Oral Torah, and everyone copied them so that they would know how to keep the commandments. Although the oral Torah was not meant to be written, Rabbi Huda saw that the persecutions were becoming increasingly harsher and the number of sages was continually decreasing. Each day brought new troubles, with the Jews being scattered far and wide. Fearing lest the oral Torah be forgotten completely, he decided to put the Mishnah into writing so that the essential part of the Torah would not disappear. There were eleven leading sages in Rabbi Judah's tribunal, all of whom received the tradition from him. They included his sons Shimshon and Gamliel, Rav Afes, Rav Chanina bar Chama, Rav Chia, Rav Yannai, bar Kafra, Shmuel, Rav Yechanon, and Rav Hayshia. There were also thousands of other sages whose names are no longer known. The mission was completed in Hebrew in the year three thousand nine hundred and forty-nine. 120 years after the destruction of the second Pesamekdash. Soon after this, Rabbi Chia wrote another book called the Tesefta. Rabbi Heyshia and Bar Kafra similarly wrote a book which they called the Brisa. Another disciple of Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yochanan, was a descendant of Yosef and was known to be an extremely handsome man. He served at the head of the academy for 80 years. It was he who redacted the Jerusalem Talmud, around the year 4000, some 200 years after the destruction of the second temple. All these books were written to explain Rabbi Yehuda's Mishnah. Such explanations had to be written because in the course of time the meaning of the Mishnah was forgotten, and the number of sages who could adequately interpret it, consistently decreasing. Rav Hoshia also compiled the Midrash Rabbah on the Book of Barathees. The Midrash on the other books of the Torah, from Shemos to the end, was written by Rabbi Shmuel. Rabbi Kiva had also written a midrash called the Mekilta. Rav compiled a volume on the book of Vayikra, known as the Sephra. Other sages also wrote commentaries explaining the Torah. The four sages who received the tradition from Rav and Shmuel were Rav Huna, Rav Yehuda, Rav Nachman, and Rav Kahana. The five who received it from Rav Yechanan were Rav chana Rav Ami, Rav Asi, Rav Dimi, Rav Abin. Two sages who studied under Rav Huna were Rava and Rav Yosef, and under them two others, Abai and Rava. In the following generation, two other sages learned from Rava, these being Rav Ashi and Ravina. Rav Ashi was the leading figure of his time until his death in 1487, 358 years after the destruction of the temple. Rav Ashi was separated from Moses, by 40 generations. Moshe received the Torah from the, mount, from the mouth of God in, his glo- in all his glory. All of the sages therefore received the Torah from God since each one received it from its master in a direct line. From the time of Rabbi Judah the prince, until Rav Ashi, no individual could be found with such Torah knowledge combined with greatness, piety, and humility. Rav Ashi was perfect in every aspect. He served as, a head, as the head of the academy for 60 years in the city of Sura. Providence granted him stature in the eyes of the king of Persia, and he was able to assemble sages from all over the world to Babylonia to learn from, one each, from each other. Ravashi compiled a great set of volumes known as the Babylonian Talmud or the Gemara. With the passage of time, many points were being forgotten, and the Mishnah had become so difficult that no one could understand it. Ravashi, therefore, compiled all the teachings that had been expounded since the time of Rabbi Huda the Prince, quoting each source and writing each thing in its proper place. It's, it is from the Talmud that we know what's forbidden and what's permitted, what is clean and what is unclean, who is liable, who is innocent, what is valid and what is invalid. The entire explanation of the Torah and commandments, which were taught from the time of Moshe until Ravashi, was included in the Talmud. It was published with the consensus of all the sages of that generation, and no one has the authority to dispute it. The Torah, which Moshe received from God and taught to his 600,000 people in the desert, cannot be disputed, just as the entire Jewish people accepted the Torah, so they accepted the Talmud, taking upon themselves not to oppose any of its teachings. If a person opposes the Talmud, his position is meaningless, no matter how much proof he brings for his arguments. The Talmud was completed in the year 4,265, thus there was an interval of 316 years between the writing of the Mishnah and the writing of the Talmud. After Avashi's death, some 80 years was spent in extremely deep analysis before the Talmud was actually put into writing, comprising a second edition, Even after the Talmud was completed, it was re-edited a number of times, from beginning to end, until it was considered precise and perfect. As time passed, knowledge decreased. Thus, for example, the Talmud had been written in Aramaic, which then served as the vernacular. The very reason Ravashi wrote it in this language was so that everyone should be able to understand it. Later, people stopped speaking Aramaic, and it became difficult for them to understand the Talmud. There remained only a few sages who could learn a law on their own. Providence saw to it that there should be many sages in the Holy Land, in Babylon, in Spain and in France. These sages were called Ga'onim. Among them was Rev. sharira Gon, who for 30 years was the head of the academy in the city of Praz, Pompadissa, which had a Jewish population of over 90,000. During his lifetime, he appointed his son, High Gon, to take his place. They were followed by Rev Gon and Rev Yitzchak Alfasi of Fez as well as numerous other sages. These sages had a custom of gathering all the rabbis to their academy twice a year during the months of Adar and Elul. Throughout the year, each individual would study the course outlined for him by the Dean of the Yeshiva. During these two months, they would all get together and each one would present his lesson to the Dean. If the lesson was not adequately completed, the individual would be severely rebuked by the dean and urged to spend more time in his studies. As a result of this system, each one would study the Torah with great enthusiasm. During these months, every question that had been directed to the academy would be answered. The dean would confirm the reply with the consensus of the other leading sages. These sages would also explain ambiguous points in the Talmud in which they were deeply involved and would write volumes of laws and explanations. This was done each year from the time that the Talmud, Talmudical canon was closed until the year 1837. Around this time, troubles began to increase, and the knowledge was lost to such a degree that even the books of the Gaonim, which had been written to present the law very clearly, were understood only with difficulty. If If these were difficult, the Mishnah and the Talmud were almost impossible. A person needs extremely broad knowledge, tranquility, and a long life in order to learn all that is necessary, and to know the essence of each law with all of its logic and detail. This was necessary before one could understand the Mishnah and the Talmud. But at his time, people did not even know in which volume to find the necessary law, and the Torah was on the verge of being forgotten. Providence then illuminated the world with a brilliant sage versed in all areas of knowledge. Looking back at many generations, historian could not find any record of such a great mind. The name of this individual was Reb Moshe ben Maimon from the city of Cordova, a descendant of Rev Yehuda HaNasi. He later moved to Egypt where he served as a royal physician. This great sage wrote an extremely important volume, which was renowned in every Jewish community in it. He codified all the laws and commandments of the Torah. The volume was called Mishnah Torah, literally Review of the Torah. People at that time considered it sufficient to read a portion of the Torah and then review its laws in the volume. The Mishnah Torah was completed in the above-mentioned year of 4,936. In this one volume, one could learn all the explanations, rules, and laws without resorting to any other text. Even the order of the service of services for weekdays as well as Shabbos and festivals was included in this volume, written in large letters so all could understand it. Before writing this book, the Rambam, as he was known, spent many years in study. He re-edited it many times, making it concise and lucid, free of all ambiguities. Anyone who wished to strengthen his faith and piety need only to read his sections on repentance, morality, and Torah study, which are written in a particularly simple style. Even if a person had a heart of stone, he would be moved. Unlike other sages, the Rambam did not include in any of his work any concepts that were beyond the letter of the law. And all that he included were the basic obligations of the Jews, Jews, which, if not fulfilled, would subject the person to divine punishment in the future world. One who did not read his book would not know how to keep these basic rules. Around the same time, there was another great sage from the city of Troyes in France. His name was Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhaki, but he is best known by his acronym, Rashi. He wrote a commentary encompassing the entire Bible and Talmud. After completing it, he traveled the world for seven years, seeking to find if anyone had written a better commentary than his. After much investigation, he found none, and only then did he publish his own work. This commentary literally opened people's eyes. Today, no one can understand the true meaning of a biblical verse or Talmudic selection without studying Rashi's words. His commentary on the Torah is particularly clear and concise, and according to tradition it was written with divine inspiration. Many years later, a great sage from Constantinople, Rabbi Leo Mizrahi, wrote a commentary on Rashi's work on the Torah. Rashi had thus enlightened the Jewish world in many fields, including Talmud, grammar, logic, law, and other disciplines. Another leading luminary was Yosef Cairo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, in which he codifies all the pertinent laws and commandments of the Torah. The first edition of this book was divided into 30 portions. And in his introduction, the author writes that he did this so one should be able to read a portion each day, and thus complete the entire volume in a month. This book was thus meant to be reviewed each month, so its entire content would be remembered. This is a work that is important and useful, arranged like a beautifully set table, where anything needed could easily be found. We see that every period in the past generation, there were leaders who recognized the lack of Torah knowledge. Each one sought a way to uphold the Torah so that it would not be forgotten. Although everyone could not study the Talmud and become a rabbi, all could still learn the Torah with Rashi's commentary, the Inyakov, Yaakov, the Midrash, or the Shulchan Aruch. It was in this manner that the Jewish faith was preserved. Today the stature of the populace has been further diminished, so that few people can even read the Bible. The famine is so severe that all the work done by earlier sages and all their accomplishments cannot satisfy the great hunger for knowledge. Many people do not know Hebrew and cannot even read the Torah in its original. Even those who know the words cannot comprehend the meaning of what they read. Every day, fewer and fewer people study the Torah, and the ways of Judaism are gradually being forgotten. On Shabbos, when the cantor reads the Torah, many people do not even understand what's being read. In his final judgment, a person will be asked, all the years that you lived, what did you learn from the Torah? Did you even understand the weekly portion, which you must read with comprehension? The individual will certainly be highly ashamed, since he has no excuse woe for that shame, woe for that humiliation. His punishment will be severe. The same is true of religious practice. People do not even know how to read a law in the Shulchan Aruch, since they don't understand Hebrew. They therefore do not know how to keep the necessary laws. The Jewish people, however, are the children of good fathers. They share the holiness of Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, and enjoy hearing a good explanation of the Torah. But when a person comes from his business, he cannot find anything to study. If he takes to the Midrash, Ein Yaakov, Shulchan or other standard books, even if they are not legalistic, they are still too deep and difficult for him. Since he does not understand them, he rapidly dozes off. In the winter, a person might wake up quite early, but he finds nothing to do to occupy himself until daybreak. Not knowing what to do, he wastes wastes these precious hours with useless, worldly things. Recently, the Shulchan was translated into Ladino, and printed in clear type so all could understand it. The same was done to the book Chivas al Duties of the Heart. But even these attempts did not solve the problem completely. One reason was that they were written in Ladino dialect used in Turkey, Antolia and Tolia and Arbistan, which is not universally understood. The net result is that the people still remained unable to study Torah. Another significant Ladino volume was Regimen of Life, written by Moshe Al-Masnino. Still, this is very difficult work. Even though the language is straightforward, people here cannot understand it and do not benefit from it. Unless a person is somewhat of a scholar, he cannot fathom it, since it is written in a highly concise style, encompassing much information in just a few words. This is not helpful to the average individual, who cannot spend an entire day trying to understand a single thought. Whenever he wishes to progress in this book, he is held back, either because he does not understand certain words, because the ideas are too difficult, or because the text is so concise that it must be reviewed a, mem- a number of times. Furthermore, it's a very small book which is completely, fairly, completed fairly rapidly, leaving one with nothing further to study. The problem is especially acute in the case of the homebound, elderly, and infirm. They may own many books inherited from their fathers, but since they cannot understand, they never make use of them. Any information is concealed between the covers of the volumes. Whenever they hear a rabbi's speech, they are amazed at even the simplest thought. Never having read the Bible or the Shulchan Aruch, they know nothing of the obligation of the Jews. They have no knowledge, neither of our history nor of our miracles, that God has wrought for us. As a result, heaven forbid, it's very possible that the Torah will be forgotten by a majority of the Jewish people. The third idea. One must constantly meditate on the commandment, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These few words form the basics for the entire Torah. If a person understands this, he will not envy his more successful neighbor. He will not say, why does he have the good luck to become wealthy? He will not be happy to take another's money, and he will not trouble his neighbor to come back again and again to collect money that he is owed. Such an individual will give everyone the benefit of the doubt. If he sees another person doing something good that also brings benefit, to the doer, he will not prejudge that it is being done for ulterior motives. Even when there is a reason for suspicion, he will not consider it. Instead, he will say, it is possible that I'm mistaken. The person is certainly not doing good so as to show off or to gain money. He is not giving charity to gain the praise of others. Everything's being done for the sake of heaven, to fulfill God's will. When a person gives others the benefit of the doubt, then he is given the benefit of the doubt by God. If one, if it once happened that a man from Safed went to another city, and hired himself out for three years, his employer ended on the day his employment ended on the day before Yom Kippur, and he said to his employer, "Pay me my wages. I would like to return home and support my children." When the latter replied that he had no money, the worker pressed for his salary. "Give me the value of my wages and produce. I have no fruit. Give me some land, and I will find someone to buy it." I have no land either. Give me some animals, then. I have no animals. Give me quilts and cushions. I have none. Seeing that his employer constantly denied having anything, he became discouraged and gave up. At the same time, the worker knew that his employer did not lack any of these things. After three years of hard work, he returned home, dejected and penniless. After Sukkis, the employer took the sum of money that he owed his worker, He also loaded three animals, one with food, the second with wine, and the third with fruit. Arriving in Safed, he placed all of this at the workers' home. They ate together and he paid him the entire wage, whereupon he asked, When you asked for your wages and I claimed I didn't have any money, what did you think? The other replied, I gave you the benefit of the doubt, assuming that you had bought merchandise and had used up all of your ready cash. Since it was just before Yom Kippur, you could not sell anything as to pay me. And when you asked for animals and I refused, what did you think then? I thought that you might have hired them out and could not get them back immediately. And when you asked for land and I said I didn't have any, what did you suspect? I assumed that you might have rented your land to a sharecropper so that your fields could be not given away. And when you sought fruit, what did you suspect? I assumed that you had not yet separated the necessary tithes. It was just before Yom Kippur and there was no time to tithe your produce. And what was your opinion when you asked for quilts and cushions and said I had none? I assumed that you had consecrated all your belongings to, to Hectish. The employer swore to him and said, This is precisely the case. I consecrated all my belongings because of my son, Horkinus, who had gone off to study Torah. I was so angry for him for abandoning the business that I did not want him to enjoy any of my property. When I visited my friends, the sages of the South, they showed me my error and annulled my oath of consecration. Now, just as you have given me the benefit of the doubt, may God always give you the benefit of the doubt. Actually, it is wrong for a person to consecrate all of his belongings, since loans cannot be repaid and employers are denied their wages. It is considered a good deed resulting from a sin. But the worker gave his employer the benefit of the doubt, assuming that he had only consecrated his household goods, but not his fields and livestock. And he was therefore still good for his obligations. The only reason why these could not be sold was that they had been hired out to others and could not immediately be retrieved. This Talmudic antidote illustrates the extent to to which one must give another the benefit of the doubt. One must even assume that the most extraordinary circumstances, just as this worker had assumed that his employer had consecrated all his belongings, even though it was an extremely far-fetched assumption, Therefore, if a person sees his neighbor doing something and he cannot find any merit in it, he must still give his neighbor the benefit of the doubt. He must assume that there is some valid reason for the action, even though it might not be obvious. If he does this, he will never be guilty of unfound hatred toward another and will not enjoy harming others through malicious gossip. He will always be glad to do favors when other people ask, and whenever possible. With such good thought, he will have many accomplishments." In general, when a person properly fulfills the commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he will not do anything that he would not want done to himself. Through this, he will keep the entire Torah and not sin. The fourth idea. A person must constantly meditate on the fact that he is mortal and will eventually die. He should consider that life eventually ends for all men, rich and poor, young and old, Thus, he will avoid sin and overcome the evil urge which attempts to lead him astray each day. Contemplating one's morality is a tested method of destroying the power of the evil urges. Our sages also advise that one should make a declaration during his lifetime. When a person is about to die, the angel of death tries to make him sin, saying, If you recite Shema, I will deal harshly with you and I'll torture you. But if you deny the Torah, I will protect you from all troubles. When a person is near death, his will is weak, and out of fear, he feels obligated to heed the advice of the angel of death, who is identified with the Satan. But if he does so, he loses both this world and the next. One should therefore make an annual declaration in the presence of ten men, either on the first of the month of Elul or on the day of Rosh Hashanah. One should not wait until he is sicker in his deathbed, since he may die suddenly or lose the ability to speak. This is the declaration that one should make. O God, my Lord and Lord of the fathers, great and mighty God, in whose hands are the souls and spirits of all creatures, when, after many long years, the time comes for me to pass away, may it be your will that my mind be clear when my soul leaves my body. May my soul be at ease, and may my mind be healthy and alert. Do not take away my love and fear for you, so that they remain with me when my soul departs my body. And if, heaven forbid, it is fitting that I experience pain, suffering, confusion, or loss of my mental faculties at the time of my death, I acknowledge the righteousness of your judgment. You are just in all that comes upon us, for you have done it, and we have been wicked. I do not, heaven forbid, deny any commandments of the Holy Torah. I do not deny any details of the rules of Judaism that our sages have taught, and that we are obligated to keep. I believe with perfect faith that God lives and exists for eternity. Besides him, there never was and never will be another. He is trusted to give good reward to the righteous in the world to come and punish the wicked. I believe with perfect faith that the death will be resurrected at the time that God wills so. He has the power both to kill and to give life. He will also send us the true Messiah. May it be your will, O God, my Lord, and Lord of my fathers, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, that you protect me from the evil urge and inscribe me in the Book of Good Life. Give me strength, fortitude, and health to serve you, to study your Torah and to keep your commandments. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my Redeemer. When a person meditates on all that we have written and makes himself aware of the morality of men, he will surely be adequately prepared when his time comes. When a person goes on a journey, he must make sufficient preparations and be certain to have necessary supplies. If he does not do so before he leaves, he will not be able to do so later. SCOPE OF THIS ANTHOLOGY It is for all these reasons that I have been impelled to do something for the average person and write a commentary on the entire Bible in Ladino. Each chapter will be an anthology of the teachings of the Midrash and other major Jewish classics. Also included will be pertinent laws as presented in the work of the Rambam and in Reb Yosef Cairo's Shulchan Aruch. I will not discuss anything that goes beyond the law, merely the simple obligation binding on every Jew. This work will be divided into seven parts. Number one, Barashas. Number two, Shemos and Vayikra. Number three, Bamidbar and Devarim. Number four, the early Prophets. Number five, the later Prophets. Number six, the 12 minor prophets together with the five scrolls. Number seven, the rest of the Bible. Do not think that I've written anything of my own in this book. The entire volume is nothing more than anthology. Based on the Talmud, Midrash, and the Rambam's work and the Shulchan Aruch and other major Jewish classics, I myself have done nothing more than anthologize these works and translate them into Ladino so that everyone will be able to understand them. Notes will indicate all the sources from which I have drawn. This is fitting and proper, since the Torah obli- obligates us to quote our sources. A person should not mask himself in a cloak that is not his, making statements as if they were his own, and not citing their sources. This would be nothing less than theft, bringing calamity to the world. It is similarly forbidden for a person to fool the public. If he only knows a small portion of the Talmud, and people honor him for knowing it all, he has an obligation to inform them of the truth. It is for this reason that I have annotated the sources of every major teaching that I cite. Benefits There are ten fundamental benefits that you can gain from studying this anthology. You will be aware of the commandments which you must keep, as well as the sins and prohibitions which must be avoided. There are many things which you might have done without being aware that they are forbidden, and once you learn them, you will refrain from them. Number two, you will have a clear understanding of the miracles that God has wrought for our ancestors. These are recorded in scripture in a highly concise form, often by a mere illusion. You might know that Noah was safe from the flood, or Abram was rescued from Nimrod, cast into the fiery furnace, or that the Red Sea was split during the exodus from Egypt. Yet you might have little idea of how exactly these miracles occurred. There are other miracles of which even minor details are not generally known. And there are yet other miracles which are not recorded in the Torah at all, for reasons that we shall discuss at length. When you read this anthology, you will be able to visualize all these miracles just as if you had personally experienced them. Number three, it's well known that the Torah portion must be reviewed each week, twice scripture and one targum. This means that one must first read the scripture twice and then read the Aramaic targum translation once. Even if the Torah is heard in synagogue, it must be personally reviewed each week. This rule was legislated so the average person would be able to understand the weekly portion. In those days, even people who did not understand Hebrew spoke Aramaic as their vernacular. The Targum was given to Moshe on Mount Sinai. It was then later forgotten and then reconstructed by Unculus, a convert to Judaism, based on the teaching of Rabbi Lazar and Erbushua some 1900 years ago. Today, since people do not understand Hebrew, and Aramaic is even more foreign to them, they are not careful to review the weekly portion. In this anthology, the entire portion is translated into Ladino, and everyone can read it and fulfill his obligation. It's obvious that one who understands neither Hebrew, Aramaic, nor Rashi must read a commentary that he can comprehend. One should therefore read the Hebrew twice, and then, in place of Targum, read this anthology. If one cannot read Hebrew, then he should read this anthology alone. One should try to divide the weekly portion into seven parts, reading one each day. Some should be read in the morning before business, and the rest in the evening before bedtime. In the course of a week, each portion is then completed. Number 4. There are many questions that can be asked about each portion in the Torah. There are words that seem superfluous, ideas that seem contradictory, and concepts that are difficult to understand. In every case you will find satisfactory answers in this anthology. It's important to realize that Moshe wrote the Torah with very precise ink, nothing is superfluous, not even the smallest letter. Number 5. I have explained the relationship among the various prophets and the kings of Israel, the interplay among them, the letters they sent to one another, and the reasons why some were killed. I have also recorded the years in which these events took place. Number 6. This anthology will also be a great help to businessmen who wish to conduct their affairs according to the standards of the Torah. Even where the detailed laws have not been spelled out, the reader will have enough information to know when to ask a rabbi. Number seven. In this anthology, you will find many anecdotes from the Talmud, Midrash, and other Jewish classics. You will learn everything that happened since the time of creation without resorting to secular history. Many things found in such books are false, and it's forbidden to read them even during the week, and certainly not on Shabbos or on Tov. During the long winter nights, you will be able to study this anthology. As you read each part, you will find laws, commentaries on scriptures and anecdotes. As time passes, you will gain great benefit. Since many of these are translated from the Talmud of Midrash, you will gain knowledge of this important segment to our sacred literature. I would like to declare openly that if, in the future, anyone wishes to reprint this book, he should not abridge it by eliminating any of the detailed laws that I have included leaving only the stories and the anecdotes. The Lord of the Universe, who probes the secrets of every heart, knows that my intent was not to write stories or advice. My main goal was to enlighten the community so that they would know how to keep the Torah commandments. The stories were included only to emphasize certain important points. Number eight, you will also learn how the Holy Temple appeared and how sacrifices were offered. I will explain the order of services recited on Yom Kippur and the reason for each detail. In addition, I will discuss the order of the daily sacrifice, as well as those offered on Shabbos and Tov. Although these sacrifices are no longer offered now that the temple has been destroyed, the Talmudic sages have taught us that when a person studied the laws of a sacrifice, in order to understand the biblical references, it's counted as if he had actually offered the sacrifice. This is a special advantage unique to the laws of sacrifice. If a person studies the laws of Shabbos, it's not counted as if he observed Shabbos. Similarly, if he learns the laws of tefillin, or tzitzis, prayer, sukkah, or lulav, it's not considered as if he kept these commandments. He may be rewarded for his Torah study, but if he does not actually observe the commandment, he is punished accordingly. Only in the case of sacrifices is the study of the law the same as the actual offering. There are five types of sacrifices. The burnt offering, the meal offering, the sin offering, the crime offering, and the peace offering. When a person studies the book of Genesis, it is counted as if... He sacrificed a burnt offering. The book of Shemos is considered like he offered a mincha. The book of Ayikra is considered as if he offered a chatas. Learning Bamidbar is like he offered asham. Learning Devarim is like he offered a shlamim. When a person studies all five of the Torah, it's counted as if he brought all the sacrifices. In general, when a person studies Torah so as to know which laws he must keep, it's considered as if he observed the entire Torah. This is still true even though there are laws that, he cannot, that cannot be kept, or no opportunity to keep them ever arises, since his intent is good. As long as the intent of his study is not merely to pass time, to know the world, or to be able to show off his knowledge, it's counted as if he kept these commandments. This is true, of course, only when it is impossible to actually keep the commandment. Number nine, this anthology will explain to you the greatness of our holy Torah. All the stories found in the Bible, especially in the Torah, are not to be considered as mere legends. In the Zohar, Reb Shimon Yochai said, Woe is to the man who says that the Torah merely comes to teach us worldly stories and histories. One who says this has no portion in the world to come. If the Torah were merely a history book, we could write better history today. If the Torah had such a mundane purpose, how could we recite a blessing, thank God for choosing us from all our nations and giving us His Torah? Such a blessing is said before and after reading the Torah. Each morning we recite a blessing to cover what we intend to study that day. Some people do not know anything else but only read the Bible stories. How is it fitting for them to recite a blessing if these stories are merely legends? Furthermore, if there is even the slightest error in the writing of a Torah scroll, it is invalid and cannot be used. This is true even if the mistake is in the name of paro or B- or balam for these for mere stories what's the difference in a minor variation there is a reason why the torah uses study stories as a vehicle for its teachings when angels visit the physical world they disguise themselves as human beings thus when the three angels visited avram he thought that they were ordinary wayfarers he prepared a meal for them they sat at his table and avram watched them eat The same was true when Yaakov wrestled with the angel. Angels must clothe themselves in mundane forms, since if they did not, the world could not endure their radiance. If this is true of an angel, how much more so must it be true of the words of the Torah, for whose sake heaven and earth were created? When the Torah was given on Harsinai, it was therefore necessary that all of its secrets and mysteries be disguised in the form of stories. If the Torah had remained in its true spiritual form, the world could never have accepted it, and the human intellect could never comprehend it. It was for this reason that King David prayed, Uncover my eyes that I may behold the wonders of your Torah. He was saying, Lord of the universe, open my eyes that I may see the secrets of the Torah which are clothed in the obvious stories found in the scripture. People wear fine clothing so others will respect them and give them status. Those who understand better do not pay attention to the garments, but to the appearance of the person wearing them. The wisest, however, disregard physical appearance completely, concentrating on a person's intellect and mental characteristics. If a person has good mental qualities, they respect him even if his clothing is old and torn. If he has no intelligence, he is given no respect, not even if he wears the most beautiful clothing. Similarly, the rules and laws of the Torah are its body. The, hist- the histories and stories in the Torah are the garments that clothe its mysteries. The soul of the Torah, though, consists of the mysteries themselves. Fools see nothing more than history. They can, un- they can understand and enjoy, but when they come to laws, they skip them, not wishing to know them. Those who are wiser do not concentrate on the garments of the Torah, but on its body, which consists of the laws and commandments. They study them extensively until they are experts in the matter of their observance. The greatest sages, however who know all the laws perfectly, concentrate on the mysteries of the Torah. Since they are involved in the soul of the Torah, they are known as masters of the soul, bali nefesh. Their reward in the future world will be that they will understand the mysteries of the Torah to a greater extent than they do now. This also explains what the prophet Jeremiah meant to say when he said, Behold, days are coming, says God, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This appears difficult to understand, since it implies that God intends to give us a new Torah, and we know that's impossible. It's clear that the Torah that that God gave on Sinai will never even have a single word changed. This is obvious from God's words to his prophets. Remember the Torah of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him, for all Israel decrees and laws. The true meaning of Jeremiah's words is that the ultimate future, human intelligence will be increased. All the mysteries are currently enshrouded in words that make them appear like history, since the human mind cannot grasp their true depth and meaning. But in the future world, they will be understood just as if they were written explicitly. The Torah, as studied at the time, is called a New Covenant. The term is appropriate since the difference in comprehension will be so dramatic that it will seem like a totally new Torah. Even now, we can learn many important lessons from each portion of the Torah. For instance, in the account of Avram's servant, Lazar, he repeats everything that happens to teach important lessons. Similarly, the Torah's listing of the dukes of Edom may seem trivial, but as we shall see, it teaches us important mysteries. It would not even be fitting for a mortal king to tell trivial stories, and it would certainly not be proper of him to have them written down. How, then, is it possible to imagine that God would write mere tales of Hagar, Lavan, and Balaam's donkey? But it is an important principle of our faith to believe that all these accounts serve as garments, clothing the many deeper mysteries. You will notice that the stories of the Torah are not always written in chronological order. Thus, for example, the death of Isaac is recorded before the selling of Joseph, even though he died later. Our sages teach us that the Torah is not written in chronological order, and we should point out a number of such examples. One reason why the Torah was not written in chronological order is because if so written, it would enable people to perform all sorts of miracles, including the resurrection of the dead. The true order of the Torah is therefore concealed from all but God himself. Chronological order is also avoided occasionally to teach that the Torah is more more than a collection of histories. Number 10, the 10th benefit you will derive from this book exceeds all the rest. Our sages teach us when a person engages in Torah and deeds of kindness, all of his sins are atoned. This is based on the verse, through love and truth, sin is atoned. Where there is Torah is love and kind deeds are truth. Even though Torah study is highly important, one must also keep the commandments and do good deeds. It is written for a commandment is a lamp and the Torah is the light. This indicates that without observance of the commandments, study of the Torah is not sufficient. The main reason why the Torah must be studied is that the commandments be kept properly. Neither a lamp without a wick nor a wick without a lamp is adequate. Each commandment provides the doer with a lamp, while the Torah study gives him a wick to, so that it will produce light. This is the meaning of the above verse. Our sages likened one who studies Torah but does not keep the commandments, to one who spends much money building a house, but then neglects to install a door. As long as the house remains open, it's little, little better than an open field. A person might say, I do not wish to be religious, but since I find it enjoyable, I will study the Torah. Such a person has no reward for his study. The main purpose of Torah study is to enable one to keep the commandments. One should learn constantly and not wait until he retires. Similarly, one who has money should immediately strive to give charity and do other kind deeds with it as soon as he receives it. He should not say, I will set aside a fixed amount for good deeds after I make a large profit. One does not know how long he will live, so one must do good as soon as possible. Acknowledgement Through this book, thank God, we have been able to benefit both Torah study and charity Providence willed that the great philanthropist Yehuda Mizrahi would print this book, thus benefiting the community. He put together a large sum of money to pay off all past debts and pledged to cover all future costs. As a result, a thousand books will be printed. This book of Bereshis and other six parts which will complete the Bible shall be printed in the following manner. From the money earned from this first book, the expenses for paper and printing shall be paid first. From the remainder, the author shall be paid his effort, according to the usual amount given to those who collect charity for the Holy Land. The remainder is to be set aside and considered as a consecrated money. It shall then be divided into six equal portions. One portion should be used for Jerusalem, one for Hebron, and one for Safet. This money should be used exclusively to support the sages living in those cities and not be included in the general community fund. One portion is to be set aside for the sages in the advanced academy in Constantinople. The remaining two portions should be set aside for the Society for Aiding the Sick, B'Krcholom, and the above-mentioned three cities of the Holy Land, as well as for the benefit of the cons- congregation in Constantinople, as detailed in the Bill of Consecration that I have drawn up. Obviously, all these monies should be invested safely where they will earn ample interest, each year the appropriate sums should be distributed from the interest, leaving the principal intact. I have taken upon myself this year to complete a commentary on Ladino on all the books of the Bible, just as one who, uh, who collects charity for the Holy Land must travel to every city. So have I taken upon myself to explain each chapter, traveling through the Talmud, Midrash, and, and commentaries, laws, commandments, customs, stories, explanations, and basic Judaism. Each will be explained in its place with nothing omitted. I am declosing this so all who buy this book will know that besides learning and gaining knowledge from these basic Judaisms, they will all they are also accomplishing something important with their money. When a person gives simple charity, the good deed is done and finished. If he wants to do another good deed, he must put out still more money. But the proceeds from this book are used for an extremely important purpose. With the money safely invested and its income distributed each year, the money is therefore used for charity all during the giver's lifetime and even after his death. A Parable If a person does not sin, he avoids spiritual punishment. But if he wishes to enjoy the benefits of the future world, he must also amass good deeds and observance. Only then will he have the status in the future world. There was once a great and powerful king who announced that he would not be like any other kings, in whose kingdoms those with money and status automatically attain a high position. In his kingdom, one who desired high position would have to be victorious in battle or render an an important service to the king. If successful, he would then be promoted to position equal with his accomplishment. Otherwise, no one could be promoted and there would be no exceptions. All the subjects accepted the king's order and each one did what he could to gain high status in the king's eyes. This king had three sons whom he loved very much. When the boys came of age, the king said to them, My dear sons, listen to what I say. I would very much like to keep you with me in the palace, and never have you leave me, but I have given an order that no one in my kingdom can attain high position without some significant accomplishment. And I cannot make an exception, not even for my own sons. You must therefore travel about the world and accomplish what you can. Remain away until I send the messenger bidding you return, and then we shall see what you have accomplished. You can be assured that you will be adequately rewarded." The three young men took a ship and headed toward Ethiopia. Along the way, they came to an island, which contained an immense garden. Disembarking, they visited the garden and found three guards by the open gate. The first guard was very old, bent over from his years. When he saw the princes, he said, "'My sons, come into the garden, "'but remember that eventually you will have to leave. "'You cannot remain here forever.' The second guard was wounded and covered with scars. He said, eat and drink as much as you wish, but remember that when you leave here, you will not be able to take anything with you. The third guard was quite a handsome man, neither very old nor very young. He said, my sons, be careful that you choose good fruits to eat. Do not eat anything that is unripe or spoiled so that you do not harm yourselves. The three brothers entered the garden and beheld many trees laden with fruits, and many streams and springs flowering with delicious sweet water. They also discovered vast amounts of gold and silver, as well as many precious stones. They remained in the garden for many days, eating, drinking, and enjoying themselves so much that they completely forgot about their ship. After a number of days, the brothers separated, each one exploring a different part of the garden. The garden was so huge that one did not know what the other one was doing. The first brother was only interested in eating and drinking. He did not even think about anything else. The second prince took no interest in physical pleasure, but spent all his time hoarding gold, silver, and diamonds. He began by filling his pockets, but when those were packed, he took off his clothes and made it into a kind of a sack to hold his valuables. He continued in this manner, since the more he collected, the greater was his desire to hoard more. Eventually, he found himself naked, having made all his clothing into sacks. And he wandered around the garden. He lugged all of these around. Since he did not eat or drink properly, he became weak and lost his health. So strong was his desire to acquire wealth. He was jealous of every moment and not even willing to take off time to eat. The third brother was wiser than the other two and was not tempted to act as they did. Setting out to inspect the garden carefully, he tried to understand how it functioned. He wanted to know why everything was set up so perfectly and excellently on this island and who was the owner and who took care of it. At first, he decided to study the stream and the gardens. Then he discovered that each one watered particular trees and plants at specific times each day, as if someone was controlling them. He said to himself, These wonders are not taking place by themselves. The owner of this garden is cer- certainly a very wise man if he's able to accomplish this. Each day, he would explore a different part of the garden to see if there was anything that he did not understand completely. He would eat only enough to sustain himself, and only slipped a few particularly fine stones into his pocket. The other pleasures in the garden did not interest him. The entire effort was directed towards discovering the garden's owner. After a while, the three brothers finally encountered each other and were reunited. Suddenly, they saw one of their father's servants bearing a message. It said, As soon as you read this letter, return home immediately. I wish to see you all in my palace. Do not delay. Your trial period is up. All three brothers immediately made plans to leave. The first prince, who had immersed himself in eating, drinking, and pleasure, discovered that the air outside the garden was different. It did not agree with him. All the food he had eaten began to react adversely with his system. After a few days, he became ill, and on the way home he died. The second brother was laden down with gold, silver, and precious stones. He had worked very hard, exerting much effort in hoarding them. But when he approached the gate, the guards took everything away from him. They beat him and berated him, sending him away empty-handed. They took everything, even that which was in his pockets. He then realized that everything he had done in the garden had been in vain. The third brother, however, remembered all that the guards had said. He recalled that they told him to eat whatever he desired but to place nothing in his pockets. He therefore placed a few particularly rare stones that he collected under his tongue, and he left the garden in peace. The watchers of the garden even escorted him and bid him farewell blessing him for obeying them and not coveting anything. The two surviving brothers finally returned to their homeland. One brother looked terrible, almost like an animal. He had experienced so much anguish when everything was taken away, as well as from the beating he had received from the guards, that his appearance had become unsightly. The the people would not even let him into the city. He cried and begged in a bitter voice, I'm the king's son, I went out into the world, and I have a letter from my father bidding me to return home. The people did not pay any attention to his babbling, and they threw, they threw him among the horses. A short while later they saw a distinguished, handsome young man approaching. Just one look was enough to confirm that he was of royal blood, and with great respect they escorted him to the palace. The third brother told the king everything that had happened, concluding, My lord the king, the place to which you sent us was unusually perfect. Things are found there that do not exist elsewhere in the world. As he spoke he took out some of the rare stones and said, "See." Here is a stone that I found there. Nothing like it can be found in all your kingdom. As long as I was there, I was interested in nothing other than finding out who was the owner of this wondrous garden. I thought of nothing else whatsoever. When the king heard this, he was extremely happy. Hugging and kissing his son, he accepted the gift that his son had brought, and he was very pleased to hear that he had not pursued vain things. He then took his son aside and privately told him all that he had sought to discover. The king revealed to him that he was actually the owner of this wondrous garden, that he elevated his son to the high position which he had earned. The garden in this parable is the physical world. God, who is its king and patron, sends souls from heaven to sojourn here in the physical world. Here they can amass observance and good deeds so as to be worthy of a high status in the future world. The physical body is like the ship which transports the soul while the Torah reveals the commandments, which will be rewarded in the future world. The only advantage of the physical world is that it's a place where one can observe God's commandments and thus fulfill His will. The three brothers represent the three extremes in people. There are some who pursue only physical pleasures, such as eating, drinking, travel, and parties. Since they cannot satisfy their desire, they become sick and they die. Others wish to to amass fortunes, and they are also never satisfied. They pursue their goals even when it involves personal danger from highwaymen, robbers, and storms at sea. The only goal is to hoard more and more wealth, which is merely locked away in a safe. None of it is even given to the poor. Such people enjoy worldly pleasures, but anything that costs money is strictly avoided. Then suddenly the king's servant, angel of death, approaches, and there's no way to escape him. Such a person, when he sees the end approaching, may write a will leaving his wealth to charitable causes, even though he did not give charity during his lifetime. Such a will brings him merit in the future world, even if it's just written right before he dies. But in many cases, one does not have the opportunity to do this and dies without such a will. Others then inherit his wealth. The net result of his life's work is that others enjoy it. Never, having even given charity, he has destroyed his soul, both in this world and the next. He may even have violated the Shabbos, neglected his prayers, or been lax in keeping other commandments because of his preoccupation with gaining wealth. But there are wise people who are masters of their soul. They eat and drink moderately, nourish themselves so they have strength to discover God. When they find a rare jewel, they place it under their tongue. Since they cannot study Torah all the time, they engage in some business." But their intent is to place their money in a safe place, through giving charity and keeping commandments meticulously. The only intent in earning money is to have the opportunity and peace of mind to study Torah and to contemplate the future world. This is a man's true wealth. Wealth. There was once a wealthy man who was renowned for his riches. The king asked him, how much capital do you have? Mentioning an amount, he replied, by the life of the king I have only a small sum. The king became quite angry and said, How dare you swear a false oath on my life? I know of the money that others are holding for you, and this is more than double the amount that you mentioned. Besides, I'm sure you have ready cash, which I don't know about, as well as other monies that people owe you. The wealthy man answered, I only answered your question as you had worded it. You asked me how much capital I had, and I told you how much I have set aside for charity and good deeds. I can't spend any of this for other purposes. That's my true capital." There, are, there is other money that I have, and debts that others owe me, but this is not my capital. It can be lost, stolen, or destroyed by a fire. The king was very pleased with his reply, because it was correct and logical. One does not have any true capital, other than the money that he uses for charity and other good deeds. This is truly his. The principle remains his forever. It's told that a student once came to Rabbi Yochanan and said, I want you to teach me Torah, but only on the condition that you make me a wealthy man. Rabbi Yochanan accepted him, telling the other disciples to call him the Wealthy One. The student learned with great enthusiasm and soon became an eminent scholar. One day he said to Rabbi Yochanan, Everyone calls me the Wealthy One, but I have yet to see any wealth. You still have not fulfilled our agreement that you made to make me rich, but not merely in name. One day Rabbi Yochanan's academy had a visitor who was extremely wealthy. Having inherited a great fortune in gold and jewelry, not knowing any wisdom of the Torah, he said to Rabbi Eichanan, Since I do not know the Torah, and w- what is the use of my wealth? Let me give it to one of your disciples. Rabbi Yochanan gave the entire sum to the student who he had promised wealth, and later became known as Rabbi Yossi ben Pazi. The word Paz means gold. His name indicated that this was the source of his wealth. Overjoyed, Rabbi Yossi continued to learn his studies. One day, when he was deeply involved in his learning, the thought struck him. Woe is to me, I have given up my reward in the world to come because of the wealth that I received in this world. How did I ever do such a foolish thing? Going to Rabbi Echanan, he complained, Why did you do this to me? One must study Torah in order to recognize God's greatness and keep his commandments, not to gain wealth. On that very day, he took all of his wealth and distributed it to the poor. Now, well aware of the value of Torah study, he realized that true wealth consists of studying Torah for the sake of heaven. You can now understand what King Shal said when Goliath came armed and ready to kill him. Shaul announced, The man who strikes him down, the king will make him very wealthy. This statement is difficult to understand. How can one human being make another wealthy? Wealth does not depend on man, but on God. Every day in our prayers, we repeat the verse, Wealth and glory come from before you and you rule over it. One person might give another a great deal of money and thus earn his friendship, but it is merely a gift. It does not make the recipient wealthy, since this depends on his destiny. If it's a person's destiny to be wealthy, he can gain tremendous profit through a single penny. If God bestows him his blessing on it, he will have unlimited success. But if a person has an adverse destiny, no mortal can change it. Even if he's given thousands of dollars, if his destiny does not concur, he will not be successful. It is therefore not possible to say that the king would make a person wealthy. What the verse should have said was, The man who strikes him down, the king will give him much money. This is actually in the power of the king. This can be explained through a Talmudic teaching. One who brings the multitude to do good will not be allowed to sin. God protects such a person from sin unless, of course, he wishes to do so purposely. In this light, I must thank the above-mentioned philanthropist, Yehuda Mizrahi, for his kindness in printing this book. He has made me very wealthy, since his book will bring the multitude to do good. When a person reads this book he will find it a wellspring of jewish thought of which previously he may have been ignorant when studying this book many people will be motivated to keep religious duties they had previously ignored until now a book such as this literary did not exist and our present success is a sign of god's kindness besides this philanthropist is also benefiting many other people as a result of his generosity a fund will be set up and its interest will be used for charitable purposes. It appears that this was King Shal's intent when he said he would make that person very wealthy. He cannot have meant a gift of money, as we have explained. True wealth is not in the hand of any mortal to give. Furthermore, the king also promised that he would give that individual his daughter as a wife, and it's obvious that the king's own son-in-law would never lack anything. It certainly would not be fitting for the king if his son-in-law was a poor man. But King shall's intent that he would reward the person who accomplished this great deed would be his appointment as a regent of the kingdom. As a ruler of Israel, he would be in a position to bring the multitude to good. This is certainly great wealth. Even much money would be considered a minor gift in comparison. Torah Study Every true descendant of Avram certainly wishes to be a good Jew. The only thing lacking is his knowledge of Torah. Every person realizes that if a wealthy man or a great scholar wrote him a letter saying that he should do something, he would certainly try very hard to fulfill it as soon as possible. If the letter was written in a foreign language, he would even pay to have it translated so as to know what to do. This should be all the more true in the case of the Torah, which is a letter from God himself. Now that there's a book like this, preparing, prepared and waiting, clearly explaining every detail, everyone should rush to read it. One should continue day and night so as to learn how to keep God's commandments. The true spiritual individual will delight in reading this book. He will compose a prayer. May God have mercy on the author, since through his effort I no longer engage in useless chatter as before. Now when I come home from work, as well as on the Shabbos and Yom Tov, I have something better to do. I can study this book and learn whatever I desire in the Bible. When a person reads this book, it's counted as if he studied scripture, Talmud, Midrash, and codes, since all are included in it. I have written it in the vernacular so that everyone will be able to understand it and read it daily. When God asks him if he set aside time for Torah study, he will be able to answer in the affirmative. People who are strong in Judaism and know the truth will keep these things and will bless me. Praying that God grant me strength, heal health and tranquility so that I will be able to complete this work on the entire Bible. God will bless bless these people and grant them with ample reward. It is as if they made me wealthy, since what they have given me is genuine fortune. When a person reads this book, his intent should be to understand the greatness of the holy Torah and know the ways of Judaism. According to all that is included here, if anyone finds an error, he should strive to correct it. Any mistake should be rectified and made to confirm to the truth. My intent here is not to boast about my work and effort in this book. So give me the benefit of the doubt if you find any error or ambiguity. I have worked very rapidly, concerned that if I do not hurry, I might not live to complete the work. It's also simple human nature to make mistakes. No man is perfect. The evil urge is every man's enemy, and I have worked to overcome all temptations to complete this book. God knows how much effort I have made to, to gather sayings from as many books in which they are scattered. I have written in a conversational style, like one speaking to a friend. May God, the true one, help me and grant me strength. With tears, I pray that God should show me the true, upright way. I would paraphrase the words of the sage who prayed, Let me not err, and let others not rejoice when they discover my mistakes. I do not wish others to be punished for mocking me, heaven forbid. May it be your will, O God my Lord and Lord of Fathers, that I not make any errors. Uncover my eyes, that I may behold the wonders of your Torah." A similar prayer was said by Reb Nechom Yobar Hakana whenever he entered the academy. Whenever a person sits down to study Torah, he should pray that he will be able to study for the sake of heaven, not so as to be able to show off his knowledge, waiting for another to make a mistake and enjoying being able to correct him. A final word. One has an obligation not to ignore a favor and to bless one's benefactor. For the great kindness and good that the philanthropist Yehuda Mizrahi has done for me, I wish to write a long blessing for him here in the introduction, but I find that my mind cannot compose it, and it's therefore impossible even to begin. Thinking about this, I recalled an anecdote that Rabbi Yossi told a person about a person who was in the midst of a journey. It became extremely hot, and he was tortured by thirst. Finally, he came to a great spreading tree with pleasant shade and sweet fruit. Next to it was a brook flowing with excellent water, He sat down, ate and drank, and slept pleasantly in the shade of the tree. Before he left, he said, Tree, tree, how can I bless you? You are perfect in every way, lacking nothing. Therefore, I will say, may it be God's will that your offspring be just like you. God himself gave Avram a similar blessing, saying that all of his descendants should resemble him. I therefore offer the following prayer for the above-mentioned philanthropist Yehuda Mizrahi. May it be the will of our Father in heaven that all of his children and his children's children should be good, upright, lovers of the commandments, good hearted and perfect in every respect, and may God grant him joy to a ripe old age, may the staff never depart from Yehuda, may he never cease producing fruit, and may the offerings of Yehuda and Jerusalem be sweet before God. To this I set my hand, Yaakov Kuli, Elo seventeen thirty.